TED Audio Collective. Yeah, I think you do have to blow some shit out before you get to something better. Mark Sermon was a punk rock kid. Now he's a middle-aged father of two. But actually, he's still pretty punk rock. Now he puts that mentality to work, heading up one of the most interesting tech organizations in the world. One that shows you can build software that scales without taking advantage of your customer and being a Silicon Valley I'm Anoush Zamarodi, and this is ZigZag, the podcast about the changing culture of business and work. And on this episode... Hi, I'm Mark Sermon, Executive Director at Mozilla. Mozilla is the nonprofit that makes the web browser Firefox, among a bunch of other digital products. And I think it is one of the most curious players in Silicon Valley. I've been fascinated by it for years. So in some ways, I think amongst the big tech companies, we're the weird kid or maybe the annoying kid. Yeah, the weird annoying kid. Or let's just go back to punk. Mark's going to talk about what it's like to be a rebel techie in Silicon Valley and why there's a real need for the small but mighty companies, even if it's just a stand up to the man, who in this case are the likes of Mark Zuckerberg, Tim Cook, and Jeff Bezos. Quick break. And then I'll be right back with Mozilla's Mark Sermon. This is ZigZag. I'm Anoush Zamarodi. And I am about to throw a lot of brands and production company names at you. But please stick with me. You have probably heard of the Firefox browser. Maybe you use it. Maybe you've heard of Mozilla, too. We've had ads running for them on this show. Full disclosure, in addition to ZigZag and Note to Self, the two shows that we produce here at Stable Genius Productions, I also host a branded podcast for Mozilla's Firefox. It is called IRL, as in in real life. It is about the future of the internet, and it is produced by another podcasting company, a bunch of lovely, talented Canadians at a place called Pacific Content. They're awesome. But here's the thing. From the very beginning of founding our production company, Stable Genius Productions, we have been seeking out editorial and business partnerships that reflect our values. Mozilla has always been in line with our values around tech and ethics. So we decided we were okay with talking with them here today especially in the context of Mozilla's origin story. It's really interesting, and it says a lot about the technology that we use every single day and the way businesses are run right now. If you haven't heard of Mozilla, no worries. Their browser Firefox is a little bit quirkier than the other big internet browsers like Google's Chrome or Apple's Safari. It wants to do more than just help you find stuff online. We also actually help support the movement of people around the world who are standing up for a healthier and better internet. Okay, so what does that mean, a healthier and better internet? Well, for me, a big part of that is protecting our right to privacy. 
And the way that the web works right now is that the big tech companies have stripped that away. They have done it with browsers that track your every move and search and all the information about your searches and clicks that gets sold often to marketers. The big tech companies like Google have made gazillions of dollars this way. And on this show, of course, we are trying to question the status quo of doing business this way, particularly the way that the big five tech businesses make their money off of you, your eyeballs, and all the wanderings that you do all around the web all day long, my dear listener. Let's get back to Mark Sermon, though, and Mozilla. He remembers a time... Maybe you do, too, when the Internet was more open. It was healthier. Independent coders and software developers were working to make browsers as a force for good. But it's funny, like, all that peace and love for an open Internet actually started with a war, something called a browser war. Seriously, that's what it's called. It's like a David and Goliath battle. And the Goliath in this story is Microsoft. Well, back in, I guess, 98, long time in in internet years, and Microsoft had taken over, you know, at that point, probably 95% of the browser market share. They basically used Windows to take the web back from being an open system that was on Netscape and, and other browsers. And then Netscape said, well, maybe the way to take on Microsoft and keep the web in you know, in the kind of broader set of hands to keep the market open, is use this new thing called open source. Open source, meaning no one company could control it. Anyone, anywhere, could add and improve the code of the Netscape browser that was open. And the code name for this project, pun intended, you get it? Code name for a code project? Anyway, people called the software running the browser Mozilla. Mozilla was this sort of underground alternative to Microsoft Internet Explorer. And a community grew around it even after Netscape had folded. And that community turned that old code into something called Firefox. Thousands of people around the world volunteered their time to help build a better browser. People were frustrated with Internet Explorer. Thousands of people also donated their money to put an ad in the New York Times on a Sunday, a two-page ad, announcing Firefox coming out into the world in 2004. And the rest is kind of history. People wanted something different, and this whole community around the world gathered to make it, and it took off. So how does it work now? Because there is the Mozilla, the corporation, and Mozilla, the foundation, right? There's a foundation, There's a which is the parent organization. There's a company that makes Firefox, which is where most of our employees sit, that's wholly owned by the foundation. There's also a community of, of volunteers and enthusiasts and supporters all around the world. And at the kind of day-to-day business level, there's hundreds of millions of people who use Firefox. We make revenue from search through Google, through Yandex, which is the Google of Russia, through like a bunch of other smaller search partnerships. But we do it in a privacy-friendly way. We don't do what all the other big tech companies do, which is to maximize our profits by sucking in as much data as we can. We try to balance privacy and kind of being able to commercialize in the market. And then we take a bunch of that money, about $10 million a year, and put it back out into the movement of internet activists, people fighting for net neutrality, people fighting for privacy, because we know we need something even bigger than the browser to keep the internet safe and in the hands of the people. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned that the whole reason why Firefox came to be, Mozilla came to be, was because of the market dominance from Microsoft. And here we are, 20 years later, 
And it's kind of like we're in the same predicament all over again, but this time it's Google, right? Well, I think we're actually in a worse predicament because Google dominates in search, in the browser, in advertising. And even if they're good people behind the company, and we know lots of them and they are, that much power in one set of hands is just never a good thing in any setting. And the digital world organizes our life so much that that much concentration of power in that big a part of our lives isn't good, in our opinion. It's the reason you have a lot of people talking about breaking up the platforms. And then you have Facebook in the social networking and a big part of advertising as well, and Amazon in e-commerce and increasingly in cloud computing. And of course, there are other big companies as well, but those ones really are kind of nearly monopolists in their market segments. And that, as I say, that kind of concentration of power is not good for us. You know, it's interesting to me, when I first really started learning more about Mozilla, I was like, this is amazing that this exists in Silicon Valley, like that there is a company that makes good technology that also espouses very specific and inclusive ethics. How does Silicon Valley react to you being one of the players? So in some ways, I think amongst the big tech companies, we're the weird kid or maybe the annoying kid. Although I think we also prove a point. We prove there is competition in the browser market. The independence is possible. So it's probably beneficial to have the weird kid around. And maybe it just like makes the, the party more credible. And then I would say, especially in Europe, the kind of everyday tech person, the web developer, the open source software developer, you know, really often looks to Mozilla as a place that stands for what they stand for. And a lot of them are leaving tech companies because they don't feel it reflects their ethics. A lot of people got into tech because they thought they are going to make the world better. And you know, I get the sense is Mozilla in some ways exemplifies what people wish tech would be. Mm. We struggle to be it ourselves sometimes too. I mean, it's a complicated game. Where are the struggles, would you say? Well, there's a bunch of struggles, right? I mean, we're all used to having more and more things just kind of happen almost at our whim, almost like we're having our mind read, right? The the map gives us what we want. The Uber comes when we want. The things come from Amazon when we want. And I think most of us love that convenience. And certainly if we don't love it or kind of getting used to it in a almost addictive way, But that comes at a cost. It comes at a cost to our privacy. It comes at a cost to us being commoditized and our data being turned into uh, us becoming the the product. And you know, often the the money flow isn't from us directly. It's from uh, our data being sold. We are all used to the convenience that comes from our data being sucked up all the time. Which means Mozilla is not actually often able to provide as compelling a product or be in product categories like, say, social media, where people might want a Mozilla because we don't operate that way. On the other hand, people kind of are getting creeped out by all that, but there aren't really products that provide the level of convenience and function we want that feel safe, that feel private. And so we're in a real tension between kind of the convenience we love and the privacy we seek. We do have a lot of, I'm thinking of our listeners, a lot of them are entrepreneurs or they own businesses, uh, small businesses, or, you know, they work in big corporations where they're kind of intrapreneurs, if you will. And I Mm -hmm. think a lot of people just want to do their job, right? They want to run their small business. They want to make meaningful work. But at the same time, they're kind of stuck with the business model of the web. Like, we've decided, Jen and I, my co-founder, that we won't buy Facebook ads. We kind of just 
have decided. But a lot of people are like, well, what else am I supposed to do? Tell me how I'm supposed to make a living. This is how things are done now. Yeah, we don't buy Facebook ads either. And we stopped and we need to acquire new Firefox users and it makes it harder. So we agree with you. And we also know that's one of the tensions every day. And so I, I think people can opt out of some of the things if they can afford to, opt out of things like Facebook ads. Anything you can do around privacy, security, the sort of ethics of the internet, and then communicating that to your customers. So it starts to become in the water. And I think that's a thing about how green business has evolved in the last mm. 20 years, where it's a small thing if I'm a retailer and I was recycling 20 years ago, or I'm a restaurant and I compost, or I'm a restaurant and I take what's left over and give it to people who need the food and as opposed to wasting it. And that doesn't change being a restaurant or changing being a retailer. It's about small practices that let me have less of an impact, a negative impact on the planet, but also like educate and motivate my customers. So I think we can imagine the same with things like security practices, things like making ethical choices about what software or what companies we use. Just those small things every day, you know, educating yourself about them as a business person and then actually letting your customers know you do them, which educates them and ultimately creates a snowball for a more ethical tech marketplace. We live in a, an economy where we're always looking to the future, like what's coming next? How can I be there when it arrives? Do you think it's too optimistic to predict that entrepreneurs should think of privacy-compliant products as future business opportunities? Like, are we getting to a point where consumers are starting to be like, no, I want to put my money behind a vacuum cleaner or a internet browser or name your digital tool that actually gives a crap about my personal information, that actually isn't perpetuating this business model that I know is kind of hurtful. Yeah, I mean, we're betting on the fact, and actually at the same time as betting, trying to push society in this direction that people are going to want more ethical, privacy-centric digital products. And, you know, the thing is, if you think about the, again, if you think about the environment and you think about our gas-guzzling cars or our unsafe cars and sort of where we then kind of pulled back to more energy efficiency and more safety, the pendulum swings, right? It doesn't mean that we've completely gotten rid of the car. It's going to be a long way before we get that. But finding balance in these things. And then you're going to have a, an early market that really wants stuff that is less privacy invasive, that doesn't sell my data, maybe that leaves my data in my control. I think there's going to be opportunity for some entrepreneurs in that space. And then I think you're going to see through regulation and social norms that all products are actually going to end up being more privacy-friendly and less invasive than they are today because everything will move that way. So whether you're going to be one of those vanguard entrepreneurs that comes up with the more privacy-centric, open-source version of the Alexa, I certainly see a bunch of entrepreneurs trying to go into spaces like that, and I'm hopeful for them. What's your story, Mark? How did you get to be so involved with this? What was your thinking? Personally, um, how I got into this was actually the peace movement and punk rock. Really? You know, the reason is I always have thought there's some kind of link between whatever sort of positive social change we want in the world and giving people the power to communicate. So as a teenager in the Reagan era, I was a a big part of the anti-nuke movement and thought, you know, we need to actually give people the ability to 
send out a fanzine or get on television or make radio shows. And so I was a media activist from 17 years old, but embedded in the peace movement and then the environmental movement after that. And then I was also a punk kid. And the punk thing was basically what we created on the web. So that's how in the mid-90s, early 90s, I really jumped into the internet saying, hey, this is a thing where we can bring free communication and DIY to everybody. And we've done that. We've also created some problems, some pretty huge problems along the way. So now you're a grown-up, mostly. Sadly. And you have the word executive. <laughs> you have the word executive in your title. What is your approach to, like, resiliency and avoiding fatigue when it comes to fighting for this stuff? Is it possible to have resiliency and avoid fatigue? No, that's um, a fair point. It's a it's a good question to say, is it possible to avoid resiliency and, and fatigue? And I think we all struggle with it. It's also a great question to ask and a great thing that you guys do here on the show. And I, you know, I don't know, how, how vulnerable do I get on the radio show? I mean, a, a big part of it is pushing myself too far and then knowing I need to pull back and um, spend time by myself, spend time in my garden. One of the great therapies of the last couple of years has been getting separated, buying my own house and like renovating it with a bunch of friends. So just stuff that's like not my work, mm. um, but that gets my hands dirty, that's quieter, that gets my brain in a different spot. Um, and, you know, running yoga, blah, 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 all that stuff too. <laughs> but I, I think it's Putting myself into like a just a different creative space helps a lot. But I often have to hit a wall to remind myself to do that. Yeah. Tell me about it. What does your wall look like? Oh, Manoush. <laughs> now we're getting into dangerous territory. Oh, I but warned I, you your know, assistant I, that we were going there. He didn't tell you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, well, I, I mean, I think the, there's the obvious walls, which are, you know, just overwork. We overschedule ourselves. We sit on video meetings too much. We don't spend enough time kind of having joy in work. And that that's the easy wall in a sense that then you can just dial it back and recover and, and recharge in some of the ways I've talked about. I, I think the harder wall is just the, um, the kind of hopelessness of the job that you sometimes mm -hmm. hit, right? I mean, we have built this massive surveillance-based era of capitalism out of this thing that felt like it was, you know, going to create freedom and democracy for everybody. And you look up and you go, damn, like, what did we make and how do we find our ways back to a better version of this? And I believe we can. I really believe that we've got something that can enrich humanity in the internet and is really enriching humanity through the internet. But I also see, like, the amount of power centralization and destruction of things I believe in that has come with it, whether that's through online harassment or, or eroding our democracy. And hitting the wall often looks like facing what how daunting shifting things back into balance is. In a minute, many more questions for Mark. Like, what about our kids? Should they learn to code, or is that just going to be obsolete anyway in the future? Okay, that's a personal question I have. Plus, my business partner, Jen, will be here. So please keep listening. It's ZigZag. We're back. And the other podcast that I mentioned earlier that I host is called IRL. It is paid for by the Firefox folks. That show does not run any ads. Its hope is that listeners will learn so much about how the internet works 
and some of the problems that it has, that they will be inspired to use the Firefox browser and other Firefox digital tools that take our personal privacy and our data more seriously, that protect it. Part of the problem is advertising, right? Like, when I try to imagine a web without targeted advertising, a web that doesn't track us everywhere we go so it can serve up ads to us, it feels impossible. Why would Google and Facebook give that up? It's how they make their billions. But if the business model stays the same for these big tech giants, how can anything else really change when it comes to how we all run businesses and the work that we do and our relationship to the internet? These are some of the fun questions I have before I go to bed at night. And it's what I wanted to ask Mark. What I would say is I don't think we, I don't imagine we have an internet without ads. I mean, and I don't actually have anything against advertising. It's supported some aspect of how media has worked in big parts of the world for 150, 200 years, depending on on how you look at it. But the idea that we have this total data-sucking model, like really pervasive profiling of us is the the thing that's necessary to exchange for free content on the web or free services on the web. Like this is not only unnecessary, it's untenable. So I think it's a bunch of things. It's less data-hungry advertising models. It's probably subscription services. It's maybe something like Interledger where we're streaming payments to the stuff we talk about. It's probably public media like the BBC, it's probably data trusts where you know we own our own data and give it out to the folks we trust as opposed to having somebody like Facebook or Google owning our data and selling it to whoever they like. I think it's a whole bunch of those things that we have to try. And ultimately, it's a place where we all feel private and secure and in control of our digital lives. I do think we can get there. That this, There's no single path, though. I'll tell you something I'm struggling with. It seems to me that suddenly, and and this is where I was two years ago when my book came out, about helping people get offline, turn it off. Digital minimalism is another book. And now suddenly you have those people calling on people to be online less. And yet I actually have started to feel differently. I feel like, no, no, this is the moment where we realize collectively that the Internet is too wonderful and too awesome for us to give up on it. I feel like, no, this is the moment where we all have to call for the regulation or call for the design standards or call, you know, like the people working at Amazon asking the company to be a little bit more green. This is the moment we are at. I wonder what you think about this idea of like, turn it off and just turn it off. Because I don't, I don't know that that's the answer. Yeah, it's not the answer. I mean, it's a good thing to do, maybe to go back to resiliency and mental health. Sure. I mean, I, I take two weeks a year to go somewhere without electricity and leave all my devices behind. So I think from that perspective, turn it off is great, or use it less, or whatnot. But ultimately, we have structured our world around the internet and things digital. And until we kind of blow ourselves off the planet or back into the Stone Age, the world is going to be digital. It is structuring what our society is going to become. And whether that is one of like complete targeted surveillance-oriented commercialism run by a few companies, whether that's a state, corporate, 
hybrid of the sort of Chinese internet model or whether that's a thing that is more humane, more balanced, more enriching to humanity, which is, I think, where we started with the idealistic beginnings of the internet. We get to choose that. And to me, dedicating some of your energy, whether that's a tiny bit as a business that's online and is just using the internet and thinking about being more ethical, or whether you dedicate your life to privacy-friendly products or being an internet activist, I actually think this is one of the most critical issues of our age and one that we can take in the right direction if we choose. The other listener who we hear from a lot are parents who are like, how do I prepare my kids, whether it's for a workplace in the future where a lot of things are going to be automated? Is it learning to code? Is that the answer? Or is it just learning to write really, really well? Or is it learning to be able to have a conversation? Because at the end of the day, we don't think computers are going to be able to have empathy and do all the caretaking that's going to be necessary for our aging population. How can parents prepare their kids? You know, I think being reflective with your kids about what's going on in the media environment is a really powerful starting point and actually fun. I mean, that's something that (laughs) my kids are 17 and 19 was like a part of what we did was like critique movies together, play video games and critique them. And so that, that is a part of it is just like spending time in technology and in media with your kids and thinking about it playfully and critically with them. But then I do think the whole learn to code movement is very right and very wrong It's right in that I think really we do want everybody to learn to code. and We want all of our kids to be exposed to that. But the reason isn't because we want them all to be engineers. In fact, God forbid that everybody in society was an engineer, that, you know, it's not a balanced society. But it's because it's helpful for people to be able to understand how the digital world around them works, the logic of the things that are happening. So as jobs change, as we get targeted or can choose to not be targeted in terms of how our data is used, that we're kind of understanding what's going on. And so I often really think of the learn to code as being a part of a bigger set of literacy about how the digital world works and the the logic of it. I should have mentioned you don't actually live in Silicon Valley. You live in Toronto. It is true. I do not live in Silicon Valley. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of grateful for that. I live in Toronto, uh, which gives me the bonus of not being at the center of the tech empire uh, every day and also being a Canadian looking over the border. Yeah. Do you still come visit our country, Mark? I do visit your country. I, I quite like oh, it. okay. I think the thing is there's both a, a lot in the U.S. that built the internet and built Silicon Valley that is really valuable in terms of a vision of entrepreneurship and freedom and so on. And we're at a spot where too much power is concentrated in too few hands. And a lot of my time is spent looking at how do we help small entrepreneurs be successful and build startups in this kind of megacorp environment? Mm -hmm. How do we help people in regions that aren't the US and China be successful in creating new tech companies, especially tech companies that are more privacy-oriented. So I'm interested and excited actually about how do European companies come up and actually really start to provide an alternative approach to the kinds of products we would have. But even how do African companies come up and have a different approach? And you're starting to see that happen too. Love your country and love Silicon Valley, but I think we just need more diversity in where tech comes from. Seriously. 
Okay, last question for you. I would be remiss not to mention the fact that I am hosting Mozilla's podcast, or actually, I think we now say that it's Firefox's podcast, IRL, which has been a great honor for me. But I will be honest that if you had told me I'd be hosting a branded podcast a year ago, I would have been like, "Uh uh-uh, no way. But Mozilla and Firefox actually... It's kind of perfect. I was like, well, actually, this is a product and a a nonprofit that espouse everything that I'm doing with my journalism, in addition to the fact that the podcast IRL is very journalistic in the work that it does and has great producers on it. So that's been a joy. But I wonder if you could just tell us why, if Mozilla's not and Firefox is not buying Facebook ads, podcasts are pretty relatively intensive to make. They're kind of expensive. You don't reach that many people. Why not blow it all on one big Super Bowl ad or something? Oh, don't don't you know about the Super Bowl ad we have in the works? Oh, we weren't supposed to say that on the radio? <laughs> um, no, there's no Super Bowl ad in the works. No, I, I mean, in the end, it's a lot of what we've already been talking about. The, the stakes are really important in terms of us taking the digital world, and which is really increasingly the whole world or organizes the whole world in a better direction. And doing that is something that we can only do collectively. It's about really a movement emerging and a deep understanding society emerging that we want to take things in a different direction like we have with the environment, like we have with civil rights. And those are multi-decade long efforts that involve like many, many, many of us. And so what a podcast is and what a lot of Mozilla focuses on is us needing to have a deep conversation as a society about where we want to go. And you you don't do that in a Super Bowl ad. No, you definitely don't. On that note, thank you, Mark, so much for our conversation. I'm really grateful. Uh, Thank you. And thank you for hosting IRL. (laughs) Uh, Thanks for doing ZigZag. It's all a part of bringing this conversation along. Mark Sermon, head of Mozilla and Firefox, and uh, Jen Poyant, co-founder of Stable Genius Productions, who is now with me in the studio. Hello, hello. Jen, do you think it was very self-serving to have Mark be our guest when we have kind of an intertwined <laughs> relationship with the company? Yes, and I... It's funny, it's funny you say that because I brought it up earlier to you that, you know, I wanted to, to make sure we disclose your relationship to them and our more formal relationship to them. But we both respect their brand and respect what they do. And I'm OK with it. Yeah, I'm OK with it, too. What other takeaways did you have about Mark's thinking when it comes to, I don't know, whatever struck you, like resiliency and how we use our technology or whatever sort of tickled your fancy. You know what struck my fancy? Tell me. The punk rock side of things. I I should have guessed. (laughs) Tell me more. Well, okay. I think this conversation renewed my faith in humanity a little bit. Oh. And I love when, like, former punk rockers or maybe current punk rockers go there. You know what it also reminded me of? Hmm. I hope it's okay to say this, but the very first time we went to Roman Mars's office, who's the head of Radiotopia... We sat down. He had kind of a sparse office at the time because they had just moved into those offices. And if you looked behind where we were sitting, there was a black framed photograph in there. And it was of him, of Roman, when he was a 
young punk rocker with like no shirt on, like jamming out. And uh, it struck me as like, oh, this reminds me of Roman and his early punk rock roots and these people that are trying to do something, trying to buck the system, trying to like stick it to the man a little bit in a way that's really smart and intellectual. And there's roots there and kind of saying no. You have been editing, obviously, a tech show for nearly five years now. But did you, are you very familiar with the punk rock roots of the internet? Yeah, I'm familiar. I mean, I couldn't give you like an encyclopedic history of it. But yeah, I, get, I mean, I get it. There are coders running around trying to create open source. We build it yeah. so that everyone can be part of it. Yeah. No, it's like not the man at all. I mean, speaking as someone who was more of a Depeche Mode and Britpop person, <laughs> I can't believe I just admitted that. I was, There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> I Wait, can I finish? Oh, what I was I'm sorry. Say. I didn't know there was more. Yes, No, of I just want to say that we've been reporting a lot, and I want to talk a little bit more about this, but we've been reporting a lot on like how these big Silicon Valley tech companies have so much power and talking this season a lot about the power of small movements and – Someone like Mark Sermon and what Mozilla is doing is, I think, a reflection of the snowball that he was describing, Mm -hmm. like that a small movement can grow and grow and grow. And we've been trying so hard to create that for ourselves with our business and, you know, these other zebra companies. And so I really saw that this conversation as like a larger reflection of that spirit. Mm. And I'm happy to see that that's out there. It is out there. And that's why I think I've been kind of like so enthralled and intrigued by them. Mm-hmm. But they're like, he said, they're the weird kids out there in the valley. I always wanted to hang out with the weird kids. Yeah. They're always more interesting sure. <laughs> than the bros. Before we came to the studio, you and I were talking about the fact that Facebook has just introduced its own cryptocurrency. And it's causing a lot of debate, consternation, mm-hmm. and also headlines about crypto and blockchain all over again. Yep, And it's once again, it's technology that had its roots in kind of punk rock, you know, good and bad people, crypto and blockchain, trying to circumvent the man. And like, sorry, but like Mark Zuckerberg is totally the, the man. man. Yeah. And now he wants to have his own crypto coin, Libra. I'd also like to take the opportunity to say if you want to learn about cryptocurrency and you didn't hear the first season of ZigZag, we delve into exactly what Manoush is talking about here. So there's an opportunity for everybody to learn how cryptocurrencies work and how blockchain works if you haven't. And if you have, then... Share it with somebody else who's like, what is blockchain? What is crypto? Because that's exactly what we were studying, like thinking about that first season. And also uh, microeconomies, which is essentially what Facebook is going to try to do. So can we do an episode on it or something or a segment or something on it down the road for our listeners? I think we should do it on the next episode, actually, because on the next episode, we're going to be talking about business things that we've learned from. Well, I'm not going to spoil it. OK, but I think but it, this is homework for us. Both. I think so. OK, yeah. yeah. OK, cool. I'm going to read now, though, an email that we got from a listener named Heather, which I think directly relates to uh, what Mark Sermon was talking about in this episode. And I really, really am grateful to Heather for writing this email because I think she – I'll just read it, parts of it. She says, I've listened to the podcast since you started it. I enjoy it. But never was I more put off than during the lightning round of a recent show with the Craigslist founder. So she's referring to the episode that where we had Craig Newmark, the founder of Craigslist, speaking to the CEO of Consumer Reports about this big gift that he made to them and how they're going to now be having a new rating system for digital products based on privacy and all sorts of 
issues that we talk about here on this show and, and on our other podcast, Note to Self. Mm-hmm. So then she writes that she was put off by my shock and horror that Craig and Marta, the CEO of Consumer Reports, use Uber and Amazon Prime. She said, so how about an entire episode posing options to all the things that caused Manoush such grief, specifically Amazon Prime? But really, you could take Facebook, Uber, any of those, since those were the ones muttered in scathing tones. Hey, Heather got mad at me. I love this. So I'm going to scroll down to the part. I mean, I don't know. I'm not a scientist or a journalist. I'm just thinking aloud. I guess I wouldn't have been so put off by the critique of those big tech companies if instead of gasping from the high horse of aghast and appalled, there had been offered some thoughtful alternatives, like instead of Uber, I should use blank, or instead of buying from Amazon Prime, I should use blah, blah, blah. So I worry that I did not make the point, which is that we don't have alternative options yet. Right. And so I wrote back to her and I said, Heather, thank you so much for listening in this thoughtful email. I think your question, like, what are the alternatives, is exactly the point and the reason why there are so many much-needed big debates happening regarding antitrust and privacy and what happens to our personal data and all these other big tech issues And, you know, what we were talking about in that other episode, if you haven't heard it, do go back and listen. It's this idea of reviewing products for a different, more ethical set of criteria. But then I said to her, I was like, that's the point, though, is to start a pipeline for new products like Mark is talking about that take those criteria into consideration. I would say the only products, because there are not a lot of them, are Firefox, frankly, mm-hmm. which is one of the reasons why we talk about them so much. DuckDuckGo, Duck yep. yep, the private browser. Proton Mail mm-hmm. is a kind of experimental private email service. Are you still using that? I'm not. Why not? Because I live in Gmail. I live I know, in G it's Suite. So hard. It's That's so the hard. problem. This, this is, is exactly problem. what you're talking about. And this is why the antitrust conversation is so important. Because if you have the consolidation of all these products under one company, Google, Alphabet, They dominate. Right. Like, no one can innovate or compete or anything. And so Mark's point that even if Firefox is small, it should exist just for the sake of existing to show that there is a market, even if it's small, and to keep people on their toes. Yep. Small and mighty. Totally. Small and mighty. Right on. Jenny, that one's for you. So I said to her, you know, Heather, you are at the start of a movement. You are here with us. Yeah. And so... I think she's asking exactly the right questions that every consumer out there needs to ask themselves. Every business person, as Mark talked about, needs to ask themselves how they can do it. Yeah, and he also mentioned this trade-off of convenience, right? Maybe you don't do the alternative for Amazon Prime, but you decide that you're going to not do Instagram instead. Like We have to decide what's the most important thing for our, our convenience because we do live in the modern world. Like we're not like he said, right. we're not going to go off and live in the Stone Age anymore. Like we live in a digital world. So you have to make choices. And I think what your shock or your aghastness was, frankly, looking at Craig Newmark <laughs> and Marta Tayado and seeing that. Frankly, they looked like they hadn't thought about it much with, when you were asking. I think, I think you're that's right. That's why. what freaked me that's out. That's what freaked you out. And I, I, to be honest, I was surprised too. It wasn't. It was surprising. Uber. Uber. Yeah, I use Uber. Oh, there I go again, being appalled and aghast. But no, but I, I mean, don't get me wrong. I loved the, that interview, and I, 
it was a thought. I thought it was a very thoughtful conversation on many levels, particularly when it comes to data and privacy. But that's why you were shocked because we were talking about data and privacy. That's why you were asking those questions. Calling it like you heard it, Poyant. Can I just add that you asked me the other day, like we were on the phone, and you were like, "Hey, hey, hey! I know that Firefox is the better option and all that, but I'm struggling with it." Mm-hmm. And I. I think you were struggling with it because you were trying to use all the Googly things that we use yeah. to run our business on the Firefox browser. Yeah. So I told you my hack, my personal hack, which is that when I'm doing work things, I use Chrome because I'm using all Google products. Mm-hmm. I, I, we haven't found an alternative. It's the world we live in right now. Mm-hmm. But I do use Firefox for everything that I do that's personal. I would just say it's a little bit of a pain, but I do it because I want to support Firefox because I like the idea that my personal life and my personal data lives somewhere separate from all my business stuff. Yeah, that makes sense. Like I just don't want to consolidate all of my information under one umbrella. And I hold out hope that within the next five to ten years, we do see this idea that we have more – either we can say to companies, whoa, I didn't like what you just did. I want all my data back, and I want you to shut it down if they do do something. That's Mm -hmm. like the first step. Maybe that's in the next couple of years, Mm -hmm. maybe five years. And then ten years, we have the model flipped where instead of you logging into Google, Google has to log into you, and you only share the information that you feel comfortable sharing. That's the, like, ultimate fantasy, right? That yeah. is being worked on. Like and you hold the key. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Lots of people working on that. Scientists like Sir Tim Berners-Lee, inventor of the web, yeah, and blockchain people also. Mm-hmm. Um, that, But that's, like, it's a decade, yeah. likely, down the road. But we have to imagine it before we can make it so, right? Yeah. But anyway, the point being that we are linking information in ways that has never been done before in the history of the planet. So we don't know. Yeah. Then it's our job to kind of point out, and other journalists' jobs, to point that out. That's what we do, you Ask know. the questions. <laughs> <laughs> oh, can I add one thing? Which is, before we go, as I mentioned in the interview, I am also hosting IRL, the podcast that Firefox sponsors. It's really good, actually. I'm really actually... I'm excited about it. I have not listened yet, yeah, but congratulations on the Thanks. launch of season five. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. It's weird working with, like, other people, but I told you, like, Dom... Yeah, man. Shout out to Dom. Dom's I haven't met you, best. Dom, but... He's Manoush, awesome. There's a lot of respect coming from Manoush on how you run your shop, so yeah, this pumps. Yeah, the, he's great. You're, you know, you're no Jim Poyant, but I will <gasps> say, no, no, I, he knows. I'm joking. <laughs> he knows that, like, he and I have a similar like relationship. Yeah, to, like it's very. Yeah, he's a good producer. He's a yeah. yeah. Full stop. So do check out IRL. It's a really deep dive into the privacy conversation. So if that is like one of your jams, please do listen to the podcast. You can find it at IRLpodcast.org. As always, our other podcast that we're doing, which is about technology and humanity and is Note to Self. Note to Self lives on the platform Luminary. It is behind a paywall. We think it's worth it. Do check it out. Anything else we should say? I'd link to all of these new episodes that we're putting out in our newsletter, which comes out every other Thursday, that I write and then I send to Jen to edit. And I sit there and, like, hold my breath while I wait to hear, like, she emails me back. And sometimes she's like, huh, I wouldn't put it that way. (laughs) But more often than not, she's like, that was good. You got a weird typo here, though. (laughs) Um, 
<laughs> so do sign up for it. You can find it at StableG.com. It's free. It's really good. It's really good. It is good. Yeah. I mean, that Atlantic piece, I was embarrassed that I hadn't found that. Oh, good. I, I found unearthed it. something yeah, for you. That's great. awesome. Yeah. yeah. It's like, welcome to my brain. That's really good. Um, what else? Please, if you like this podcast, tell five people. People have been doing it. People have been emailing us and being like, oh, and I'm going to go do the five people thing. Please. Because, like, I really think the theory it. really is that if you tell five people, one out of the five will listen and will grow slowly that way. Maybe yeah. two. I think that makes sense. Yes, please do. It means a lot to us. A lot of you um, have been very generously asking how you can help um, online, on, on social media, and in our inbox. And, and that's really the best way. So thank you. Yep. Thank you very much also for listening. Yeah. This episode was produced by you and me, Jen Poyant. Matt Boynton is our audio engineer and sound designer. David Herman is our composer. Maria Wartel is our production coordinator. And many thanks to Anya Zhejik for her audio engineering, too. Zigzag comes from Stable Genius Productions. We are proud members of Radiotopia from PRX. I am Manoush Zomorodi, and thank you so much, as Jen said, for listening. What are you talking really? about? Yes, I'm every time you have to do it. <sighs> okay. That okay. that moan is gonna be our kicker, by the way. <laughs>